and our spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Galatians chapter number 5. And, of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a study in the book of Galatians, verse by verse, through the book of Galatians. And tonight, we find ourselves in uh, Galatians chapter number 5. And uh, tonight, we're going to go through a little bit over half of the chapter. We'll make it to verse uh, 15, and then we'll cover the rest of the chapter next time we meet together on on a Wednesday night, but let me just go ahead and kind of upfront give you uh, the three different headings. There's three headings or sections in which we can see these 15 verses, and I'll, I'll give you the divisions and kind of some titles for the he- those headings if you're taking notes, and I always encourage you to take notes on your, the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to be able to do that. And uh, the first heading I've simply entitled Stand Fast, and if you're interested, we'll cover verses 1 through 6 under that heading. And uh, the next heading I've entitled, Ye Did Run Well, and we'll cover verses 7 through 12. And then the third heading I've entitled, Called Unto Liberty, and we will cover verses 13 through 15. You'll notice that those uh, headings or points are taken directly from the passage. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with a subject that is uh, a little bit of, of controversial subject uh, among Christians, not a controversial subject by the world standards. We, we preach a lot of those as well. Uh, but this is kind of a controversial subject among Christians that Christians like to debate about, and it is this idea of Christian liberty. And the Apostle Paul kind of deals with this and delves into this uh, in this portion of Scripture. So we'll begin with this first section, Stand Fast. And you'll notice there in verse 1 where I get the heading from. He says, Stand fast, therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That phrase, stand fast, means to have a firm or fixed or settled position. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the Galatians, and one of the issues we've been talking about as we've been moving through the book of Galatians, we've been talking about the different themes, and one of the themes of the book of Galatians is the fact that there are these Judaizers who have came from Jerusalem to the region of Galatia, they are bad-mouthing and, back, uh, and, 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 and uh, complaining against and criticizing the Apostle Paul and his ministry, and they are teaching a false gospel. They are teaching that someone has to keep the Old Testament Mosaic law uh, in order to be saved. And, of course, if you've been with us over the last several weeks as we've traveled through the book of Galatians, you know that the Apostle Paul has systematically dealt with each one of those issues and, and has attacked it. And here we kind of have... His conclusion. Now, it's not the concluding of the book because he still has some very practical things to talk about uh, halfway through this chapter and into the next chapter, but he kind of ends this doctrinal portion in which he's been defending the faith and defending himself, and he ends it by stating, stand fast. He is making a request to the Galatian believers, and he is uh, requesting of them. He is asking of them. He is uh, pleading with them that they would stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And I want you to notice that here in verse 1, there's a positive and a negative. The positive is liberty. He says, the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And then the negative is this, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And I want you to notice that when the Bible talks about salvation and, and this term uh, liberty. And the reason I've entitled the sermon Christian Liberty 
is because he, he kind of deals with this idea throughout this passage, and he deals with it in two different areas of the Christian life. But the first one is this regarding salvation. What he is referring to here when he is telling the Galatians to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty where Christ has made us free, he's referring to the fact that uh, salvation is liberty, and Christ has made us free. And I want you to notice, uh, keep your place there in Galatians chapter 5. That's obviously our text for this evening. But go with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, John chapter number 8. If you start at the beginning of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter number 8. As you turn there, I just want you to notice that, that phrase there in verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath I want you to notice how your King James Bible says it, hath made us free, hath made us free. In John chapter 8 and verse 32, John 8, 32, the Bible says this, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says make you free. If you've got another uh, version of the Bible, a corruption of the Bible, you'll find that it says set you free, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and the modern Bible versions will say, set you free. John 8, 36, same chapter says, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. In Galatians 5, 1, if you want to go back there, Paul said, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. The same idea as made, when he says made us free is the same thing that John wrote when he says the truth shall make you free. And you might think, well, uh, what's the difference in are those semantics? But you need to understand that this is speaking about salvation. And the difference between being made free and being set free uh, are, are two different things because one is where you are just changing in your position. The other one is where you are changing in your creation. See, salvation, and I, and I won't have you turn here, but I often think of this story when I think of this. You remember the apostle Paul had been arrested uh, and, and he was about to be beaten, and he has this uh, conversation with the Roman uh, centurion and with the guard and with the guys that were going to beat him, and, and, he, and he talks about the fact that he's a Roman, and, and the, the soldier says to him, with a much sum, he said, I purchased this freedom, but Paul says, I was freeborn. And, and the idea, when we think about it from the Roman Empire or just citizenship, uh, you can become a citizen or you can be born a citizen. And when it comes to salvation and being a citizen of heaven, you don't, you're, you're not naturalized. You are not, uh, they don't, uh, uh, you know, set you free and then you have freedom. But you're made free because of the fact that you're born again. When you get saved, you're born again. You are a new creature. The Bible says that we are a new creation uh, revived and, and quickened by the Holy Spirit of God. So when it comes to salvation, I was not set free. I'm not a slave or a servant that was set free, but I am a child of God that was born free. We were made free, which is why Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Uh, John said, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. So there's this positive idea of liberty. But then the negative, if you're there in Galatians 5, look at the last part of verse 1, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's saying, look, you were made free. You were created. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new, are become new. And here, 
He says, look, because you've been made free, because you were born into the family of God, and you were made free, and the truth has made you free, he says, don't go back and be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And this idea that he's talking about here, the yoke of bondage, is the idea of going back to try to have some sort of works-based salvation, where you're under the bondage of the law and trying to earn Uh, salvation through the law and again this is not the first time that the apostle paul has brought this up you're there in galatians 5 go back to galatians chapter 2 just real quickly galatians chapter 2 and look at verse number 4 galatians chapter 2 and verse 4 and notice what he says in galatians 2 4 he says and that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privately notice what he says to spy out our liberty which we have in christ jesus that they might bring us into bondage. And what he's saying is, look, salvation, the the reason that the Apostle Paul is using this terminology and referring to salvation as liberty is because salvation is not having to do anything in order to get saved. Salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not telling you that you have to go to a confessional booth to be saved. It's not telling you that you have to uh, enter into uh, baptistry waters to be saved. It's not telling you that you have to go to church to be saved. It's not telling you that you have to read the Bible to be saved. And look, getting baptized and going to church and reading the Bible, all those are good things. But if you have to do those things in order to be saved, then you are under bondage. And those who teach that you've got to do anything in order to be saved are trying to bring you out of the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and they're trying to get you entangled back into bondage. And this is what the Apostle Paul, this is why he makes this request. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Now, that's the request. I want you to notice the reason, because you might think, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if someone believes that you've got to do certain things in order to be saved or stay saved? The request is to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty where Christ has made us free. And then the reason is found in verses 2, 3, and 4. Notice the reasons in verse 2. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised. Now, I want you to see that phrase there, if ye be circumcised. And I want you to understand that the reason that he brings up circumcision here is because that's what they're actually dealing with in the context of the people who he's talking to. The, the, the churches in Galatia are being taught that if you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised uh, under the Jewish law or the Old Testament law, the way that they would do it in order to be saved. That's why he uses that example, if ye be circumcised. But I want you to understand something, that that can be interchanged with any work of the law. In fact, if you skip down to verse 4 just real quickly, you'll notice that it says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are justified by the law. So he says, if you be circumcised, is anybody who's trying to be justified by the law. Now, if you look at verse 2 again, I want you to understand. When he says, behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised. The idea is whatever action you think that the keeping of the law is, he says, if ye be circumcised, notice what he says, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, that's a pretty uh, uh, stern statement there to say, look, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And again, the idea is not if someone's just been circumcised, then, then Christ's not going to profit anything. It's if they got circumcised, believing and trusting that they had to do that in order to go to heaven. If they're trusting in their circumcision to go to heaven, Paul says, Christ shall profit you nothing. Verse 3, 
For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but look at verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And here's what you need to get and understand. When you see that phrase there in verse 2, if ye be circumcised, that's just an example. That's the example he's using because that's what the Galatians are dealing with. But you can swap that with any other keeping of the law and it would be true. See, Paul said, behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And the idea is this. He's telling these people, if you go and get circumcised because you think that you need to get circumcised in order to go to heaven, that's some sort of an action that you need to do. He says, if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. We could say, if you get baptized, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now again, nothing wrong with getting baptized. We're going to have a baptism tonight. But if you're getting baptized thinking that some, some way, somehow, that water is going to save you, then Christ shall profit you nothing. If you go to church uh, and think, well, going to church and the act of going to church is what's going to save me, then Christ shall profit you nothing. If you repent of your sins, look, nothing wrong with repenting of your sins. We try to get, help people repent of their sins all the time. But if you start stop drinking or stop doing something, thinking, well, that will be the thing that gets me to heaven, then Paul says... Christ shall profit you nothing. Look at verse 4. Christ is become of no effect. Christ cannot help you and will be of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And the idea is this, that if you add the keeping of the law to salvation, then Christ shall profit you nothing. Because you cannot have it both ways. You're either going to get to heaven by keeping the law or you're going to get to heaven because you were unable to keep the law and, and you've accepted the price of, of salvation and the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. Look, you either put your faith in Jesus Christ and put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you or you put your faith and your trust in yourself and your keeping of the law. But you can't do both. And you see, today people will teach, oh no, it's both. You know, and we go out soul winning and all day long, religious people say, well, yeah, we have faith in Jesus, but you also have to. You can't just live however you want. Yeah, we have faith in Jesus, but you also have to go to church. Yeah, we have faith in Jesus, but you also have to uh, get baptized. Yeah, we have faith in Jesus, but you also have to repent of your sins. But here's the thing. Paul is clearly saying, if you're trusting in anything to get you to heaven, Christ shall profit you nothing. You say, how can that be? Well, keep your place there in Galatians and go, back, go, go to Romans if you would. Romans chapter number 11. If you go backwards from Galatians, you've got the book of 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, then the book of Romans. Romans chapter number 11. It's either Christ or it's you. It's not a mixture. You cannot have it both ways. And the Apostle Paul actually kind of makes that clear in Romans 11. I've showed you this verse before, but I think it's good for you to see it again. Romans chapter 11 and verse 6, where he says this, And if by grace, Romans 11, 6, now, what's he talking about? He's talking about salvation. Because remember the famous Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because salvation is a gift, it is of grace. And if it's of grace, then it's not of works. Now, notice what he says in Romans eleven six. 6. He says, and if by grace. He says, if you and I are saved by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And what I often 
teach our church family, when we look at those passages, think of the word grace as free, because that's what it means. Unmerited favor. You're getting something you don't deserve. Work means to earn. Salvation throughout the Bible is called a gift. And what he's saying is this. If the gift is free, then you can't earn it. Otherwise, if you're earning it, then it's not free. He says, if it, and if by grace, then it is no more work. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. He says, but just to make sure, he says, let me say it a different way. But if it be of works, if you can earn it, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you cannot have salvation both ways. You cannot say it's of grace and it's also of work. He says, it's either of grace and you get it without paying for it. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Somebody else paid for it. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and he gives it to you by grace or it's of works and you earn it. But you can't have grace and works. And this is what Paul is saying. If you go back to Galatians 5.1, he says, look, behold, Galatians 5.2, behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. He says, you want to trust in your circumcision for salvation, then, then, then good luck with that on your own, because Christ shall profit you nothing. Verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So here's why he's telling them to stand fast and stick with the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. He gives them two reasons. The first reason is this. And what Paul is telling them is this. If you try to keep the law to go to heaven, then Christ shall profit you nothing. And you can't keep the law and trust in Christ. You've got to choose one. And it's, always, it's interesting to me because, look, isn't the Bible just clear? I mean, you can just clearly read this and just think like, yeah, it makes sense. If you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law. And it makes no sense to me why it is that so many religions today are teaching you got to work your way to heaven. And they'll say the opposite of what Paul. They'll say, no, no, it's faith in Jesus, but you also have to. And, they'll, and, they'll, and every religion has their own little, you know, steps or whatever. They might say, speak in tongues. They might say, repent of your sins. They might say, pray at a certain time. Whatever it is, but they all are trying to just have this mixture between something regarding the justification by the law and Jesus Christ. Paul says no. And then here's what's interesting. At the end of verse 4, I want you to notice this little phrase. He says, ye are fallen from grace. And this is a phrase that is kind of a common, commonly used phrase that comes from the Bible when someone is fallen from grace. And let me just kind of explain this term to you. You know, in, in just our normal vernacular today, just in the secular world, when somebody says, oh, so-and-so has fallen from grace, what they mean by that is that, you know, they, they're no longer in, in, in favor. They're no longer liked. You know, they're, the boss stopped liking them. They've fallen from grace. Or the girls stopped liking them. They've fallen from grace, right? Or, or whatever it might be. But when people use this term theologically, when they say fallen from grace, what they mean is that somebody lost their salvation. When a preacher or someone teaching the Bible refers to someone falling from grace, they will say that that individual has lost uh, their salvation. What's interesting to me is that there's no way you can get that from this passage. Where in this passage does it say you're fallen from grace and you lost your salvation? Or let me take it even a step further. Where in the Bible does it say you can lose your salvation? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that anybody ever loses their salvation. The phrase 
Falling from grace does not mean that if a Christian sins, he falls from the grace, thereby loses his salvation. Instead, to fall from grace in this context is, 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 the, is the only context that is important. And it is this, that when someone chooses, when someone chooses to put their faith in something they're doing, circumcision, keeping the law, when they choose to, uh, to, to put their trust in some aspect of the law, then they have fallen from grace. Because if it be of grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. So it's, it's easy to understand if you just look at the context. The phrase, fallen from grace, means this. To choose a works-based salvation is to relinquish grace as the principal means by which salvation is given. So when we go out soul winning, and we ask people about salvation, and they say something along the lines of, well, yeah, I mean, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, I, I, I could lose it. They've fallen from grace. If somebody says, well, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but, you know, you got to repent, so you can't just live however you want, then they have fallen from grace. Because you can't have works and grace. You can't have my part and his part. And people will literally say, well, yeah, Jesus did his part, but i got to do my part. No! If you're trusting in your part, then Christ shall profit you nothing. Christ has become of no effect unto you. It's either grace or it's works. You can't have both. And if you choose works, if you choose the law, if you choose some sort of action you're doing to get yourself to heaven, you've fallen from grace. Grace is no longer available to you because it's either grace alone or nothing. It's either Christ alone or nothing. So if you try to keep the law to go to heaven, Christ shall profit you nothing. That's the first reason. Now, maybe you're here and you say, and I, I'm sure everybody here uh, can understand that, but there might be somebody listening online or whatever and say, well, I don't know about that. I don't think that's enough. There's a second reason. And I would say the second reason is even more compelling than the first reason, though the first reason is pretty compelling. That it is possible for you to put your trust in some action that you are doing, and when you put your trust in that, you cannot put your trust in Christ. Christ will profit you nothing. Here's the second reason. It's found in verse 3. For I testify again. Notice the second reason. He already gave the first reason in verse 2, reiterated in verse 4. In verse 3, he says, let me give you another reason. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised. Remember, he's talking to people who are believing and putting their trust in their circumcision. He's talking to guys that are going out and getting circumcised and thinking that that is part of their salvation. They are trusting that they're going to heaven. If you would have asked them, do you know for sure you died today, you go to heaven? And they would say, yes, I believe on my way to heaven. What are you trusting in to get to heaven? They would have said, I got circumcised. That's what they would have said. No different than when we go out soul and we say, what are you trusting in to go to heaven? Well, I got baptized. What are you trusting in to go to heaven? Well, I spoke in tongues. What are you trusting in to go to heaven? Well, I used to do drugs and now I don't. Now look, I'm glad if you used to do drugs and now you don't. Praise God for it. But if that's what you're trusting to get you to heaven, then Christ has become of no effect. Now notice what he says in verse 3. He says, for I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You say, what's the second reason? Well, the first reason is this, that if you're trusting in something that you're doing to save you, Christ shall profit you nothing, because it's either grace or works. You can't have it both ways. That's the first reason. But the next reason, he says, if you try to keep the law to go to heaven, then you are a debtor to do the whole law. See, if you add the keeping of any part of, the, of God's law to salvation, then you must commit yourself to keep every part of God's law for salvation. You and I don't get to pick and choose. 
We don't get to say, well, I'll do this part of the law and this part of the law and this part of the law, and I think that's enough to get me to heaven. No, no, no. God says, hey, you get to choose. You either put your faith in Christ alone, or if you want to try to keep the law, no problem. You can go to heaven keeping the law, but you better keep the whole thing. Notice what he says. For I testify, verse 3, again, to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Because, look, any part of the law will send you to hell. Isn't that true? For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Every, any part of the law will send you to hell. If you want to go to heaven based off your own righteousness, you've got to be without sin. The problem with that is that there is none righteous, though not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and you can't keep the whole law. But if you want to go down that road, if you want to say, well, I want to take my chances, and I, I think that I'll just try to live a good life and try to keep the Ten Commandments, and hopefully that'll get me to heaven. Hey, let me tell you something. If you try to keep the law to go to heaven, you are a debtor to do the whole law. You better keep the whole law. And I don't have to know you to know this about you. You can't. And I can't. And nobody can't. In fact, only one man could, and his name was the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this first section here, that you are to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Why? Because if you're trusting in your circumcision, if you're trusting in your repenting of your sins, if you're trusting in your going to a confessional booth, if you're trusting in the fact that you took communion, if you're trusting in the fact that you go to church, if you're trusting in the fact that you're doing anything, Christ shall profit you nothing. And if that's not enough of a compelling reason, then here's another reason. The minute you decide that you're going to keep any part of the law in order to go to heaven, then you become a debtor to do the whole law. And nobody can do that because Paul already explained to us in the book of Galatians that the purpose of the law was to be a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. We weren't supposed to look at the law and say, okay, there's the plan. I'm going to do it. No, the whole purpose of the law was for us to look at it and say, I can't do that. I can't keep that. I've already broken that. And it was supposed to bring us to Christ. That we might say, I can't work my way to heaven. I'll accept grace. I'll accept the free gift. So we see this first section, stand fast, verses 1 through 6. Then we see the second section. I want you to notice it in verse 7. I've titled it this, ye did run well. Ye did run well. And the Apostle Paul kind of shifts gears here a little bit. It's related to what he's talking about. But now he begins to focus on the fact that these individuals were on the right track and now they're no longer on the right track. He says there in verse 7, ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And there's three things I'd like you to notice regarding this hindrance. He's referring to the fact that they have been hindered. He says, ye did run well. Who did, notice this word, hinder. Who did hinder you? that you should not obey the truth. And I want you to notice the first attribute of hindrance. And the first attribute is this. You say, how can I know if I'm running well? Because the Christian life is likened to a marathon that we run. In fact, let's just run a couple of verses real quickly. Keep your place there in Galatians 5. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Towards the end of the New Testament, if you go backwards, you have the book of Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, and then the book of Hebrews. Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, James, and then Hebrews. Towards the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 1. Hebrews 12 and verse 1, he says, Wherefore, seeing we 
also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which hath so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The Christian life is likened unto throughout the Bible as a race, not a sprint, but a marathon. It is a lifelong race. And, and here we are told to set aside, to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The Apostle Paul got to the end of his life and he said, I finished my course. He said, I got to the end. He said, I got to the end of my race. The Christian life is a race. And what Paul is telling the Galatians, when he tells them here, go, go back to Galatians 5. He says, ye did run well. He said, you were on this run. You were running the Christian life. You were on the track running the Christian life. And he says, ye did run well. Who did hinder you? You say, how, how can I know if I'm running well or I'm not running well? Notice the attribute of hindrance. He says, ye did run well, but I know you're not running well now because he said, you have been hindered that you should not obey the truth. If you want to know how well you're doing in the run in the Christian life, you've got to ask yourself this question. How are you obeying the truth? Because all of this is connected. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How do you get saved? You come to the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But you know, the way that you say, well, how do you get saved? You come to the truth. And the truth makes you free. How do you run well? You come to the truth. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. You come to the word of God, and it is the truth of God's word that causes us to run the Christian life and to run well. How do we know when you're not running well? When you're not obeying the truth. Ye did run well. Who did it hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? So we see the attribute of hindrance. How can you know if you're stalling? How can you know if you're being hindered? How can you know if you're, if you're not making it in this, in this run called the Christian life? How do you know if you're not running well or if you are running well? It's simple. Ask yourself this question and answer it truthfully. Am I obeying the truth? You did run well. Who did hinder you? Why, why aren't we running well, Paul? Because I've noticed that you've been hindered that you should not obey the truth. You're not running with patience the race that is set before you. So we see the attribute of hindrance. What is it? Not obeying the truth. But I want you to notice the agent of hindrance. Notice that it is a person who stopped them. Verse 7. Ye did run well. Then he says this. Who? Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And for the next few verses, Paul kind of focuses in on this because he's looking at them and saying... I know you're being influenced by someone. I know that you were on this Christian run, on the track, running the race that was set before you, and then somebody uh, who, a person, has hindered you that you should not obey the truth. Look at verse 8. He says, this persuasion. You see the word persuasion there? The word persuasion or persuading means to convince someone, to influence someone. He says, this persuasion, this this." persuasion that took you off the truth that took you off the track he says it cometh not of him that him there is referring to jesus he says cometh not of him that calleth you a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump we're going to talk about that verse here in a minute look at verse 10 i have confidence in you through the lord that ye will be none otherwise minded but notice notice what he says but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be 
often in the Christian life, it's not a what that hinders us, it's a who. It's an agent of hindrance. It's an individual that we allow into our lives. It's a friend, a relationship, a job, a co-worker, a neighbor. And the Apostle Paul here is asking the churches in this region of Galatia a question that I've often asked as a pastor to individuals is, who are you listening to? Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross cease. Look at verse 12. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. The word cut off here, if you study it out in the Old Testament, is used in different ways. But one way, in the Old Testament, people were cut off or cut out of the congregation, meaning they were kicked out. And in sometimes that cut off was permanently, they were put to death. In, in Old Testament Israel, obviously that was a government. In the New Testament, that word cut off is used to, to kicking someone out or separating from someone. And Paul says, I wish you would just cut that person off. I wish you would get away from that person. I, w I wish you would, he said, that person that is hindering you, that is stopping you, I wish you would have cut them off. And let me tell you something. I've said this for years to you young people, and I'll say it again to you young people and you not so young people. Your friends will determine the quality and the direction of your life. The people that you allow into your life, the people that you allow to hinder you, the people that you allow to have influence over you, they can stop you from running the Christian life. And so often I've seen individuals who are running the race that is set before them, running the race that is set before them, and then they meet someone. And it's like, who did hinder you? You should not obey the truth. It is not the, just the attribute of hindrance, but it is the agent of hindrance. And again, Paul has brought this up already in Galatians. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Galatians 3 and verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Remember that word bewitched? There he's saying it's like you're under a spell. Who hath bewitched you that ye should? Notice the consistency, the consistency that ye should not obey the truth. Young people, please listen to me. When you go off the rails and you stop running the Christian life, you stop obeying the truth, more than likely it won't be a what but a who. And young men, unfortunately, it'll probably be a she. Young ladies, unfortunately, it'll probably be a he. Your church attendance will be good till she showed up. Your soul winning was great till he showed up. Your Bible reading was good till they showed up. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So we see the attribute of hindrance. And we see the agent of hindrance. But I want you to notice, thirdly, the advancement of hindrance. Notice what he says there in Galatians 5 and verse 9. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. This is not the first time the Apostle Paul says this. In fact, he says it in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, if you like that for your notes. He says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? He uses this phrase in two different places and under two different contexts to explain two different things. But the phrase is just an axiom. It's just meant, it's not meant to apply in any specific situation. It's just a, a truth. And the truth is this, that sin spreads. 
a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. And look, often it is the who. And what I've learned as a pastor is that, you know, my job is to fight the who. Because the church is a flock and the Lord Jesus Christ is, is uh, the shepherd. But I'm the German shepherd. <laughs> I, I'm the watchdog that's supposed to fight the who. You say, why do you fight the who? Because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And a little bit of foolishness, and a little bit of a bad attitude, and a little bit of the wrong philosophy, and a little bit of trying to hinder people and discourage people is going to leaven the whole lump. I always think it's funny because people get upset at me. Let me just let you in on a little secret. People will get upset and say, Papa, I don't understand why Pastor Jimenez is preaching against me. First of all, number one, there's like 190 of you here tonight. I'm not that smart to know all your, maybe it's just the Holy Spirit, number one. Let's just start there. Pastor Meadows preached a sermon against me. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit trying to convince you of sin. But if you're like, no, no, I know for sure that Pastor Meadows was preaching against me, let me let you in on a little secret. You know, this, you know the stuff I preach against is the leaven that's leavening the whole lump. Because, and don't take this the wrong way, I hope you understand my heart, but we're all stupid. And you're stupid. I'm stupid. You have sin in your life. Everybody has sin in their life. I don't care about your sin. But you know what happens in a church like this? Is that people try to spread their stupid sin. And they show up to a place like this, and they're like, no, 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 let me tell you what I think. And look, the, as soon as a certain philosophy starts trying to creep into the church, because, I mean, and we've dealt with this for years. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you an example, because I, I think it's an example that's not around right now, but maybe it is, and I don't know it, and you're going to think I'm preaching against you, but it's the Holy Spirit. I'll purposely avoid the ones that are happening right now. But, you know, at our church, we, this is a soul-winning church. I don't know if you know that. It's a soul-winning church. And, and, we, and we push this philosophy that, hey, the best time to soul-winning, our big soul-winning push, our big soul-winning rally is Saturday morning. Saturday morning soul-winning. Now, we have additional times for people. There are some people that cannot make it to Saturday morning. We understand that. We're not mad at you. You work on Saturdays or you commute or whatever. We've got other times. But what we often tell people is this. If you can make it on Saturday, make it on Saturday. Saturday morning is the best soul winning time. The best time to get somebody saved is right before church on Sunday and bring them to church on Sunday. Or get them saved on Wednesday afternoon and bring them to church on Wednesday. <laughs> you, and, and, and it's funny because people will start pushing this philosophy like, oh, no, no, we don't have to go on Saturday. Don't go on Saturday. And I, ask, and I think to myself, why, why are you trying to go against the pastor? If you don't want to go on Saturday, don't go on Saturday. Nobody cares. It's fine. Do you understand what I said? Nobody, nobody has to go on Saturday. But when the pastor preaches, hey, Saturday's a big soul winning rally. We have 100 soul winners show up on Saturday morning. Let's make it exciting. Let's make sure that's a big day. Let's, when, when you're pushing that and then somebody's trying to go against that, I got to ask myself this question. Why are you trying to hinder what we're doing? Look, if you know that I have a certain belief or a certain doctrine, if you know that my wife and I, for the last 12 years, have led this church in a certain direction, and you want to come in and say, well, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to follow that, that's fine. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to follow anything. But the moment you start trying to spread your influence and spread your philosophy, because a little leaven, leaven it the whole lump, you better look out for this German shepherd. Because like I said on Sunday night, if you're going to come fight me, you better come out swinging. Because I, I've worked too hard for this. I spent too many years, I fought too many battles, there's been too, many, uh, too much bloodshed for me to allow you with your little pride issue and your insecurity issue and your need to feel big 
Say, well, what, what should we do? You, you go start a church somewhere. I don't know. Say, Pastor, I don't know if you preach this way, you're going to get kicked out. And then I'll start a church across the street called Verily. <laughs> but I'm going to fight. And look, this is an independent Baptist church. This is a King James church. This is a soul winning church. This is a salvation by grace through church. You can come in here and not believe the King James. We're okay. We're not insecure. We'll let you do that. You can come in here and not even be saved. We're okay. But the minute you start spreading your garbage, a little leaven leaven at the whole lot. So look, if you've got these philosophies that are trying to discourage people or you want to influence people, and usually it's people justifying their own sin. And it's like, nobody cares. Do whatever you're going to do. Just do it. That's between you and God. But people got to justify their own sins. They're like, well, let me get you doing what I'm doing. Because then it won't be that bad. Well, as soon as the little leaven starts leavening the slum, you better be ready because I know it's always a who. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So we see the attribute of hindrance. We see the agent of hindrance. We see the advancement of hindrance. A little leaven, leaven at the whole lot. Unfortunately, things don't get better on their own. Usually, you have to remove the leaven to save the lump. Go back to Galatians chapter 5. So let me just let you know a little secret. You don't want me to preach against you? Don't spread your dumb philosophy. If you know there's something I don't like, stop trying to get other people to do it. I, I don't know how else to say it. You're like, I know Pastor Menace is against X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to try to get the whole church to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, you want to fight? You Because... Because I'm trying to buy a $3.5 million building right now, and I'm under a lot of stress. And if you need some fight, I've got, I, I need some stress relief. <laughs> Try me. Galatians 5. Look at verse 13. Here's the third heading. Called unto liberty. Called unto liberty. Notice what he says, Galatians 5.13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, by the lo- but by love serve one another. Here the Apostle Paul begins to deal with liberty because the minute you start talking about liberty in the Christian life and you start saying, hey, you don't have to follow the law in order to be saved. You don't have to submit yourself in the bondage of the law. Then people start accusing of saying, like, oh, well, you're, you're teaching that pe- you're trying to give people a license to sin. And what I always say to people is, last I checked, nobody needed a license to sin. They do it all on their own. They're unlicensed drivers. So Paul here begins to help people understand this idea of liberty. And now he's not talking about, he's still talking about liberty and salvation, but he's applying it to the Christian life. And here's what he's saying. There's a misuse of Christian liberty. And look, today, most people that talk about Christian liberty are misusing it. You say, what is the misuse of Christian liberty? Galatians 5.13, for brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty. You have been saved, not by works, not by keeping the law. You have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Yes, salvation is not of works. But don't use that as an excuse to then just live a lifestyle of the flesh. Go to Jude in verse 4, there's one, one chapter in Jude. Jude chapter 1, look at verse 4. And this is what the liberal Christian churches today say. They'll say, oh, it's great. So therefore, it doesn't matter. We can just do whatever we want. Jude 1, 4. 
For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, notice the words, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. The word lascivious or lasciviousness means unrestrained, lustful, giving into the flesh. And he said there are some who turn the grace of God into lascivious. There are some who say, well, because it's of grace, then you can just live however you want. That's how we ended up with churches all across this country that you walk in and it, it, it looks like you're walking into a casino. You sit down and it feels like you're sitting down at a rock concert. And they're just like, yeah, I mean, oh, the rock music. Yeah, just everybody dressed modestly. Yeah, just whatever. And they, and they have people fornicating and drunkards and drug addicts. And, and look, we help drunkards and we help drug addicts, but we try, try to help you get off of that. And, and these people are saying, well, it's grace, so you don't have to do anything. Look, yes, that's true. It's grace, so you don't have to do anything to be saved. But use not your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. You say, how do you balance the two? Here's how you balance. You go out every week and preach salvation by grace through faith, not of works. You don't have to do anything to be saved. And once you are saved, you don't have to do anything to lose it. And then you bring them to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, and we preach the word of God, and we tell them, here's what God expects of you. Not to be saved, but just because you love him and he loves you. The idea is that we should not misuse Christian liberty. We should not have this thought that says, well, because I can do anything and still be saved, I should do anything. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as well. Notice what he says. And look, you, you better believe that during times, I, I said this to you a couple of weeks ago, there's always tension during times of transition. There's always tensions during times of transition. And during these times of transitions, you better believe, you think the devil is happy that this little Verity Baptist church started a living room somewhere? You think the devil's happy that we're buying a four-acre property with a 400-seat auditorium? You think he's happy about that? You say, why does he care? Because he knows we're going to fill that thing and, and reach people with the gospel and disciple them and get people off of drugs and get people off of alcohol and help people restore their marriages and help them raise their children for God. He's not happy about that. So yeah, during this time, people are going to start acting up. There's going to be the who's that have hindered you, and we're going to have to fight those battles. Look, we're building and we're battling. We're building and we're battling. Be ready for it. Don't say, ah, oh, well, I don't know. Look, be ready and realize the devil's going to fight us every step of the way. Just yet yesterday, Brother Nate sent me a text. It was really interesting. I was sitting at the table with my wife, and he sends me this text, and I, we, we pulled it up, but he said, I, I have the text, but I won't read it, but he said, Pastor, 12 years ago, exact, it was like almost to the date, he said, 12 years ago, you preached a sermon, and he gave me the sermon name, and he gave me the time marker, and, and we were in the house. It, it, was, it was 12 years ago, we were in the house, and in the sermon, I'm saying how like our church is eight months old, and we're meeting in this, in this, uh, in this living room, and I was talking about, like, one day our church is going to grow, and we're going to have a big, nice facility, and we're going to, you know, this and that, whatever. I'm talking about how one day we're going to run 100, and one day we're going to run 200, and one day we're going to have, and, and, all, and, and I'm saying, look, it's, it's going to be the same thing. And, and I thought it was just interesting. It was really encouraging to me uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, that 
that here we, and in the, in the clip I was saying, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and here we are 12 years later, and it's like we have, because the sermon was called uh, Increasing uh, uh, to a Multitude, or Increasing a Small Amount to a Multitude, and I was preaching out of Genesis on, on a Sunday night. It was really encouraging to me, because I was talking about back then, I was talking about today, and I'm thankful that here we are, 12 years later, and nothing's changed. King James Bible, soul winning, heart preaching, all of it. It also encouraged me that I think my speaking abilities have gotten better because I was really bad. I'm thinking to myself, why are you even listening to this, Brother Nate? <laughs> but uh, it was encouraging. Maybe we'll use it in a clip somewhere. It'll be highly edited, though. <laughs> Galatians 5, look at verse 13. In verse, he talks about the misuse of Christian liberty. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. And then he says, here's the proper use of liberty. And here's what is funny to me. Here's what's funny to me. Because people will say to us, they'll say, but if you tell people that they can be saved and they don't have to do anything, then how are you going to get them to show up to church? Right? Like, this is what, like, the Catholics think. Like, we got to hold this over their head. Like, you better come to church or you're gonna, we're going to send you to hell. You better put money in the offering plate or we're going to send you to hell. If we don't hold this over people's heads, say, you better live a good life. You better endure until the end or you're going to go to hell. If we don't hold this to over them, then how do you, how do you motivate people to work for God? And I think to myself, I don't know. We got 190 people here for a midweek service. We have 100 soul winners going out every week, knocking doors, serving God. We're not paying any of them. You say, how do you motivate him? Let me let you know a little secret. You don't always have to motivate people through fear. Do this or you're going to go to hell. Do that or you're going to go through hell. Do, if you don't do that, God's going to send you to hell. That's not the way that you live the Christian life. You say, how do you live the Christian life? It's one word. Paul says it. Love. Look at it. Galatians 5.13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Notice it. But by love, serve one another. Why would you serve? Because you love God. Paul said it this way, the love of Christ constraineth me. I don't go to church because I have to. I go to church because I want to. I don't read the Bible because I have to and I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. You know why I read the Bible? Because I love the Bible. You know why I live for God? Because I love God. You know why I go so many? Because I love the, the people up there that are going to die and go to hell. It's love. The best motivator is love. Notice verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. That's what Paul says. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. And here's how you know Paul is a Baptist preacher. Because he says all the law is fulfilled in one word, then he gives you a whole phrase. <laughs> he says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. What word is it, Paul? Even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But he's not. He is saying, what is the one word? Here's the one word, love. Jesus said it this way. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And to love thy neighbor as thyself. What's the key word? Love. For all the law, and this is setting up Paul, because Paul's about to go into one of the most well-known passages, which we'll see next time we're in the book of Galatians together, when he talks about the works of the flesh versus the works of the Spirit. He says, why would somebody walk in the Spirit? One word, love. For all, see, look, you can, you can manipulate people for a while. You can scare people for a while. But how do you end up? How do you end up being the Christian that runs the race that is set before them year after year? 
decade after decade. I often tell people, don't, don't talk to me about how many years. You, talk to me decades. When you start telling me about decades, when you're like my dad and you're talking to me how many decades you've been soul winning, that'll impress me. How do you do that? It's one word, love. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he says, here's the opposite of that, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. And this sets us up for the next portion of Scripture, which we'll look at next time. Next time we're in the book of Galatians, which is the works of the flesh versus the works of the Spirit. But they're done through this one word, love. The key words for this passage, love and liberty. Why liberty? Because salvation is not something that you have. It's not, salvation is not having to do with anything that you do to get saved. It's because salvation is not having to do anything. That's why it's liberty. Why is it liberty? Because I don't have to do anything to get saved. I didn't do anything. He did it all. I just put my faith in him. But it's also salvation. It's also liberty because salvation is not me having to do anything to stay saved. There's nothing I have to do to stay saved. It's liberty. Well, then what do you, why do you do what you do? Because of this word, love. You understand? That's what Paul's teaching. He says, he says, let me give you two words. He alliterates them. One is liberty. What does that mean, Paul? It means you don't have to do anything to get saved, and it means you don't have to do anything to stay saved. Then the question would be, well, then how do you get anybody to do anything? He says, well, let me give you the next word, love. For all the law is fulfilled in this one word, love. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray you'd help us understand it. That yes, it is true. There is nothing I need to do to be saved, and there is nothing I need to do to stay saved. But that doesn't mean that I live my life however I want. Because love causes me to keep the law. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Lord, I pray you'd help us understand that. Help us be Christians that are filled with love. Love for God and love for others. That we walk in the Spirit, and then we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have uh, Brother Moses come up and lead us.